Well, good morning. So uh, we are continuing to make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and last week we started talking about uh, adultery. Jesus, throughout the sermon, uh, especially in, in chapter 5, he'll give us a scripture and generally a commonly practiced interpretation of it from the law of Moses, and then he'll give his surpassing righteousness interpretation of it. He'll give an interpretation of it that takes that idea and applies it inside out, applies it not just to the body, but to the inside as well. So like a command against murder, well, that's going to affect the outside. It's going to affect your body, but also he wants it to affect your heart. He wants to talk not just about murder, but about how that should transform us into people who don't stay angry at others and don't use words to lash out at other people. He then moves on to in the Ten Commandments, where it says you shall not commit adultery. And that seems to have a, a simple enough interpretation you might think. But then Jesus says, I'm going to talk to you about adultery in a few ways you might not think of it. If we're going to make it internal, how is it that we re reject adultery on the inside? And last week, that's what we talked about. We talked about lust. Lust is one of those ways that people can have the heart of an adulterer, even if they don't act on it. They might still crave and long and desire and lust for this other person. They might still covet this other person. They might think about this other person, daydream about this other person, long to be with this other person. And even though it doesn't physically work out, their heart is the same as if it would have. If you would have the affair, if you would uh, lust, over the, you know, uh, lust over the person, then your heart is the same as the person who does, even if your body doesn't. And so Jesus takes the idea of adultery and makes it internal. Well, he's continuing to talk about that passage of adultery and give another interpretation of surprising ways that people might commit adultery. Um, as he does so, he talks about a second one. He redefines adultery, yes, as lust, but then in Matthew chapter 5, he redefines adultery in another surprising way as divorcing your spouse and then marrying another. Now that immediately, I think, would be shocking to people because we talked last week about different ways that uh, people are able to marry someone and still find a way to sleep with someone else. Uh, one way you do that in the Old Testament, you can read about certain kings who had multiple wives. The polygamy, that's one way that they tried to do that and technically not call it uh, adultery. Sometimes they would have concubines which again, that's just a fancy name for it, but, but uh, it's a way of, of trying to sidestep the idea of adultery. Well, the most honorable way you could do it, the most legal way you could do it would be to go through the entire legal process of putting away this spouse and then taking on this other spouse and then sleeping with that person. And you might think, okay, so I've avoided adultery by doing that. And what Jesus says is not so fast. Um, Jesus takes the idea of adultery, and he applies it, yes, to lust, but then he also applies it to uh, divorce and remarriage uh, in some rather shocking ways. Now, as we approach this study, I want to do so with utmost humility, and I want to do so with uh, honesty. I want to do so with compassion. Because I recognize, uh, and this is true for everyone in here, myself included, that divorce has touched every life in here, whether personally or someone you know and love well or a family member. Divorce is not just some abstract theological concept. It's something that genuinely impacts real people. It is something that... Uh, 
people have experienced genuine hardship and heartbreak because of. It's something that people genuinely consider, even if they have not gone through with it. Uh, when your marriage is going through a really tough spot and you don't see a way out, divorce seems like that way out. Um, I want to try to do two things in this lesson, and I'm going to try my best. Uh, I know sometimes lessons like this can be highly controversial. I know because it's such an emotionally charged subject, it can cause anger or it can cause uh, frustration. There are churches that have argued, churches that have split over uh, exactly how to approach this issue, and I get that. Uh, I get that it is it is such a personal and such a, uh, a combustive uh, topic that it's really hard to preach in such a way that satisfies everyone, which is why the goal of preaching should never be to satisfy everyone. Uh, I want to try to do two things. I want to try very hard to honor the words of Jesus, because the reality is in the Sermon on the Mount, he says a lot of things that are not easy to do. And if we try to make this teaching easy by muting or dulling his words, I think we're doing a disservice to him. When Jesus says, don't even be angry, that's hard to do. I mean, every one of us should recognize that. When Jesus says uh, to love your enemies, that's hard to do. When he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, that's not easy. Uh, like, like throughout this section of the sermon, he is giving radical, difficult commands. Don't lust. Don't get angry. Uh, don't even make vows. Just keep your word always. And every one of us fail from time to time at each of those. Um, I don't think the solution is to say, okay, well, then he doesn't really want us to do that anymore. No, I think you have to take very seriously the words of Jesus and do your very best to apply them to your life. However, the other side of that is I don't want to forget that even though the call and the challenge is hard and is radical, God doesn't give us these challenges without grace, and we should never approach them without humility. There are a million scenarios that one could dream up. In fact, people have. There are lengthy books written on the topic of every different divorce and remarriage scenario you can come up with. And uh, I will admit right now, I do not have the answers to all of those. Uh, maybe you do, and that's awesome. Uh, I don't. I've, I've tried my best. And uh, there are still times I just don't exactly know. Um, and hopefully we'll see why as we go through this lesson. Uh, maybe we should all uh, approach this with a little bit more humility than sometimes is done. But I don't want, because of this sermon or because of what Jesus says, people to think that they are unwelcomed into the kingdom of heaven because of sin in their lives. We don't do that with any of the other teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. We don't tell people, you're not worthy here because you got angry last week. Uh, you know, like the radical teachings of Jesus, they should be applied and followed, but they should also be presented with patience and with grace towards those who have not lived uh, the, the way that Jesus has called us to. Um, I would also say, I want to be very careful because I believe full-heartedly that the teaching Jesus gives in this passage is for the protection of the spouse and the protection of the family. It is something to make life better rather than worse. But we live in a time and in a culture also where the thing that is seen as freeing and the blessing 
often is divorce. Like divorce is seen as the way to, to have freedom. And, uh, and so when you say, no, you remain committed to a marriage, that's seen as what is oppressive. And I would say a lot of times, that's, no, that's the best thing to do is to remain committed to a marriage. But what I don't want to have happen is if someone is in like a physically abusive relationship or something like that, to then think I either have to choose between getting harmed or my children being in danger or being in danger myself or God. And I don't think that's ever what this choice was meant to be. I don't think Jesus is trying to keep someone in a scary, frightening, or abusive relationship. That's, that's not what, that's not even the topic that he's addressing. As we'll see, he's addressing a topic about a specific question, about an interpretation of a specific passage, and he is giving uh, an inspired interpretation of it that promotes love and marriage and unity, and we need to be careful that we don't accidentally ignore that to promote uh, abuse and to promote uh, harm in, in someone's life. And so, again, there are countless questions that I will not be able to answer, and there are situations that uh, I think each situation is different and needs to be fet, uh, needs to be faced and met uh, faithfully. Um, but at the same time, you don't do that by ignoring what Jesus says. And so with all of that <laughs> just thrown out there, let's dive in. Uh, so what does Jesus say about uh, adultery through divorce and remarriage? Well, these are his words in, uh, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, so that's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and it's, uh, it's not, I don't think, too difficult of a sentence to understand. Um, he bases it on this teaching from Deuteronomy 24. We'll look at that here in a second. That says uh, to give a certificate of divorce. Um, that, that's this phrase that's used in Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus says, okay, yeah, Deuteronomy says that. But I'm going to say to you something um, Deuteronomy 24 was never meant to give you permission to divorce your wives. We'll see that here in just a second. It is a way of um, regulating divorce that was already happening, but it is not a text about giving permission to divorce. And that seems to be where one of the major miscommunications comes in. Jesus grounds his understanding of divorce not in Deuteronomy 24, but even earlier than that in the Garden of Eden, where God created Adam and Eve, and he made them one flesh. And as you read through that perfect text in Eden, before the fall ever happens, you don't see polygamy, you don't see concubines, and you don't see divorce and remarriage. Uh, you don't see those types of things in God's perfect plan for marriage. In Jesus, for his kingdom, where the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven, for his kingdom, he wants us to embody that ideal from the garden rather than what you see in Deuteronomy 24. And so he advocates that if you want to be faithful to your spouse, you remain faithful to your spouse for life. And that doesn't mean because you found someone else that you like better, you set this spouse aside and you go through in the legal procedures so that you can marry that other spouse. He says, that's just a complicated way of committing adultery. Uh, you're doing the same thing, even if you go through that process. However, what's fascinating in this passage right here, uh, he doesn't actually say the man who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. <laughs> like, read it. What he says in this passage, he will say that in another passage, but in this passage what he says is the wife who was divorced 
is being, adultery is forced upon her, and the person who marries her commits adultery. So the guy who actually does the divorcing in this passage isn't called an adulterer. That's interesting. Uh, why would he not be called an adulterer? Because remember, this is part two of Jesus's teaching. The first part was on lust, where he says that the guy who sees a woman to lust after has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So I think you, you shouldn't read this verse as separate and apart from that earlier one. The, the man who is looking and lusting after another woman, even before he does anything, is already committing adultery. And then he divorces his wife, and she marries someone else, and both of them are now committing. And so, in essence, everyone gets caught up in adultery by ignoring what God's plan for marriage was, uh, as Jesus is describing it here. Um, one other thing that's important to note about this, and again, it'll come up here in a minute, is Notice that this passage is given to the man, just like the lust passage is given uh, with the audience being uh, male. He's, he's talking to men about lusting after women. He's talking to husbands about divorcing their wives. Um, that is important because in a Jewish context like this, men were generally the ones who had the legal authority to divorce. Uh, women did not. Uh, there are some studies as to whether or not a woman ever could in any circumstances, and you, it's, it's kind of difficult in the first century to see whether or not a woman could initiate a divorce. It, it's very rare if it ever happened at all um, in, uh, in early Judaism. And so that's why in this context Jesus is addressing men as being the ones who initiate divorce. But let's go back and let's see this Deuteronomy 24 passage that Jesus is talking about and see what it actually has to say. So this is the passage. Uh, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, notice all of the if, 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 and then finally in blue at the bottom it says then. The then is where you get the actual law. The first is just setting up a rather lengthy scenario. But he says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of the house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her or, uh, and, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter uh, man dies who took her to be his wife. Then, so if all of that happens, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. That's quite a scenario. Uh, so here's what it is. Basically, if a man divorces his wife and sends her away, and then she goes and she marries someone else, whether that guy divorces her or dies, she can never go back to be the, the wife of the first husband. That's the law. Can I tell you something that, that is shocking to me? As big of a deal... As, uh, as we uh, see divorce as, and, and I do think it's a big deal, what's shocking, like genuinely surprising, is there are roughly 613 laws in the law of Moses about everything, about everything you could possibly imagine, like, like about, uh, uh, you know, uh, what sacrifices you make, and if you don't have enough money, what sacrifices you make in that place, what kind of clothes you wear, and where you go, and what you, like every law about all sorts of things. And when it comes to divorce, there's, there's no, like, law about when to do that or when not to do that. Uh, there's really no regulation on that very much at all. You have this law right here, which isn't telling you to divorce your wives or not to divorce your wives. It just sets up a scenario when this happens, then you can't take her back to be your wife again. 
But there's no, there's no instruction given on when this should or should not happen or what uh, are the requirements for getting a divorce or anything like that. Uh, there is one passage about um, if, if a man sleeps with a woman and uh, then uh, basically before they're married and uh, the, husband, the father and the wife end up deciding to marry him, then once that happens, he has to remain married to her for life and not get a divorce. That's the only prohibition on divorce in the law of Moses, and it's that particular scenario. And then there's another passage uh, about a slave wife who, if she is not being given uh, clothing or shelter or uh, marriage rights, like, like sexual uh, rights, then she gets to leave for free. And uh, so if he's basically, if he's treating her like a slave and not treating her like a good wife, uh, then she gets to go out of his house for free. And it's like, those are the only, like you comb through the whole thing, that's what you find. And it's really surprising that there's no for something that is such a big deal and something that was as common, uh, there's not a lot of instruction to answer more questions about it. Well, because of that, and this is what people often do, if you, want, if you have questions and the verse you're reading isn't answering it, then you try to find answers in the verse even if they're not there. And that's what people did with this. So what came to happen with this law is you see the parts that are in red, no favor in his eyes and some indecency in her rabbis focused on those two phrases and thought, okay, so this is saying that if you're going to divorce her, it has to be because she finds no favor in your eyes and there's some indecency in her. So what does that mean? And then different schools of thoughts began to develop about how to properly interpret those phrases. Uh, there's, there, there's some famous rabbis, we don't need to get into it. There's a guy named Hillel who basically had the idea that uh, some indecency means you don't like her anymore, <laughs> or, or uh, no favor means you, no, you don't like her anymore, and some indecency could be any reason for that. Like, for example, if uh, you have people coming over and she burns the bread while she's going to feed them, well, that, that might mean you don't, she doesn't find favor in your eyes anymore, and so you can divorce her for that. That's, a, that's one of the examples he uses is burning bread. Um, others said there's no way that's what it's actually talking about. Uh, the, the indecency has to be some sort of sexual sin. There's a guy named Sh uh, it was Hillel and Shammai. And Shammai led this school of thought that said that. Anyway, they debated about this, and this is the debate that Jesus is wading into. In fact, he's specifically asked about it in Matthew 19. We'll read that passage here in a minute. But keep in mind, this passage is not intended to answer the question of when a man can or cannot divorce his wife. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a passage that is saying, hey, if you divorce your wife, and it's actually a way of offering protection to this woman in the ancient world, if you give her a certificate of divorce, you cannot change your mind on that. You cannot say she's free from you and then two years later decide, you know what, I want her back again and she has to come back to you and do it. No, if you give her the certificate, what Deuteronomy 24 is doing is it's legitimizing the divorce certificate so that it actually frees her from, for life. And so hopefully that should cause some pause and some trepidation in the husband not to, to be rash in sending her away because he won't ever get her back. She is now completely free. You've given up all rights to her. Uh, that's, what the, that's what the law is doing. She can go and find another house and find another husband and live there for the rest of her life, and you have no way to get her back. So that's what Deuteronomy 24, that's what the law is intended to do, to give this woman freedom after she has been discarded uh, because you didn't like something about her or you found someone better. But it was not intended to answer the question that so many wanted it to answer. So, as we said, many took Deuteronomy 24 as a license to divorce their wives for anything they didn't like. And that came to be how the passage was interpreted. 
And that was never what the passage meant. But you can see why people would want to do that, because there's no other law to answer that question. And given a particular interpretation, you could, if your wife doesn't make you happy in any way, you could just go find a new one. You could go get rid of her. And what that did is it ended up putting women in a worse situation than they otherwise would have been, rather than having their husbands who will stand by them and love them and care for them and protect them and provide for them for life. Now husbands are using this passage to say, hey, I can get another wife if I want to, or I can be single. I can just, either, either way, if you don't serve me and make me happy, I can get rid of you. So that was one interpretation. That's an abuse of the passage. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to correct. You have others like Shammai who said, no, that's not what it's saying. It's only for fornication. It's only if she sleeps with someone else. Okay, and so that is, uh, I think, a healthier interpretation of it. But Jesus still looks at that and he thinks that they are both missing the point of the text. Uh, the text was not to justify divorce. That's not what it was about. The text was meant to protect the woman after she was divorced. But Jesus tends to think that we should not only protect a woman after getting divorced, but you should protect her from the divorce in the first place. Jesus isn't trying to make a law that says, all right, so after a selfish husband divorces his wife, uh, is she completely free now or what happens now? What Jesus is saying instead is, hey, husbands, don't divorce your wives. If you make a commitment to provide and to love and to care for this woman, honor that commitment for the rest of your life. And don't leave her stranded and don't, uh, you know, in this culture, generally, it was a patriarchal culture. Men were the ones who, had, who made the living. They were able to provide for the family. If you uh, divorce your wife, she is going to have a much harder time finding someone else to marry. She's going to have a hard time providing for herself. She'll probably have to go back to her father's home. And you might be setting her up for failure for the rest of her life. And so what Jesus is saying is don't do that. Instead, honor your marriage and provide for this woman and love her for the rest of your life. That's, that's what the teaching is. And if you think, well, I can divorce this woman and go marry someone else, then guess what? You're, in essence, just what an adulterer is. An adulterer is someone who married and committed himself to this woman and then sleeps with someone else. You are legally doing that. Uh, and so don't do that. Instead, remain committed to this woman. So, what I want to do now is just take a brief uh, look through all of the different passages in the Gospels where Jesus gives this teaching. And what we'll see is every one of them has some significant variation from the others. And that variation ends up being rather interesting. So this is the passage we just read. Um, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality or fornication, basically she sleeps with someone, um, he makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries the divorced woman commits adultery. So in this passage, he's already said the man committed adultery through lust in the heart. Now he's saying, and the woman commits adultery uh, after being divorced and uh, the, the man who marries her does. There is an assumption in the, that I'm making in this text um, that she commits adultery by remarrying. He actually doesn't say that, but uh, I think that's, uh, that is of the, the implication. If she gets divorced, I don't think she's committing adultery just by being divorced, or adultery is forced upon her in that way, but I think it is if she gets divorced and then marries someone else. That's, that's when it is. But I, I think anytime you make an assumption, you should recognize and be honest. You are making an assumption right there. And that, that's a leap that I'm making, but I think it makes sense. Um, but then in Matthew 19, this is the next time Jesus addresses it. This is, uh, he's asked the question by some Pharisees, especially, particularly about Deuteronomy 24, the passage we just read. And Jesus says, 
because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So he's saying, all right, yeah, you, you did divorce your wives. You had that Deuteronomy 24 passage, but that was never what God wanted for you. God didn't want you divorcing your wives in that way. That was something you did because your hearts were hard. Rather, you should have loved and honored your wives throughout your whole lives, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. I mean, go back and read that passage. That's what God actually intended, a loving, committed relationship to last for life, where a family could, could, could stay together and, and you could have all of that. So Jesus says, that's what it was at the beginning. He says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So here in this passage is where Jesus addresses the man who divorces his wife. He says that one is committing adultery too. Uh, notice the phrase, except for sexual immorality. That is in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. It's in both passages. Keep that in your mind as we read these other ones. This is Mark 10. And this is where Mark tells virtually the same story Matthew does, a few variations. But uh, Mark says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Two things really fascinating about this passage. One is Jesus does not say except for sexual immorality or except for fornication. Meaning if we only had Mark, if we were the church that received Mark, uh, this letter in the first century, then we would not know that Jesus says you can if she commits sexual immorality. Uh, that is an exception that Mark simply doesn't mention. What that tells me is that Mark is not intending to offer a fully detailed theology on the subject, because there's more questions you could ask, and if you read Matthew, you actually get a slightly different answer. I mean, think about, think about this for a second. It's huge that Mark doesn't mention that, because if Jesus didn't say it, and Matthew adds it, that's a significant addition. If Jesus did say it and Mark omits it, that's actually pretty significant too, because either way it changes some of the way that you would read and think about this text. It changes it pretty, pretty dramatically uh, whether or not that phrase is in there or not. And we'll talk about what that means, oh, I think, here in just a minute. But notice Mark also does something that Matthew doesn't do. Matthew never mentions the possibility of a wife initiating the divorce. Mark does. Why is that? Why would Mark say, and if she divorces her husband? Matthew doesn't say that. Well, Matthew is probably written to a Jewish audience where that didn't seem to happen. Mark is traditionally written in Rome where women did have more rights to initiate divorce. And so as Mark is writing to his audience, he mentions the possibility of the wife initiating divorce, even though that is not mentioned in Matthew. So Matthew mentions an exception for fornication that Mark does not. Mark mentions a wife initiating divorce that Matthew does not. That's interesting. Uh, in Luke 16, this is Luke's uh, very short, Luke has the least to say about it than anyone, but Luke says uh, in just one passage, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a divorced woman from her husband commits adultery. Notice in Luke the surprising thing happens that he doesn't mention anything about adultery on behalf of a woman. Like, the only one who commits adultery in Luke is the man who divorces his wife and the man who marries the woman, but there's nothing here said about the wife who was divorced committing adultery. So, in Matthew, the wife who is divorced commits adultery. In Mark, the wife who initiates divorce commits adultery. And in Luke, there's nothing said about the wife committing adultery. 
So again, if we received the gospel of Luke, we might have a slightly different view on the subject than if we received Mark. And if we received Mark, we'd have a different view than if we received Matthew, because every one of them is telling the teaching of Jesus a little bit differently. And then you get to Paul. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul ends up in a situation where he has to answer some questions that apparently he doesn't see uh, having been addressed by Jesus. So Jesus is asking a question among Jews, or is answering a question among a debate between Jews about Deuteronomy 24 and the best way to interpret and apply that. Um, Paul is in Corinth where they don't much care about Deuteronomy 24. And he's dealing with uh, Gentiles, and he's dealing with a situation where after the church has started, what happens when you have one spouse who's married to uh, uh, another, and one of them is a Christian and one of them isn't? Well, that's not the question Jesus was answering. And so Jesus, like, when Mark starts to answer the question, he, or when, when Paul starts to answer the question, he has to, uh, to, to think for a minute about what Jesus actually said and what Jesus didn't say. So here's what Paul writes. He says, to the married, I give this charge. Well, not I, actually the Lord. So this is something Jesus said. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. That's how Paul interprets the teachings of Jesus. Uh, if you do divorce, then you should remain unmarried. Uh, or try to, try to that, that leaves the door open for reconciliation, which as Christians, we should always try to leave the door open for reconciliation. And he says, and also the husband should not divorce his wife. So Paul, writing in a Gentile world, mentions the possibility of a wife initiating divorce and a husband. That, like Mark, unlike Matthew. But then notice the next uh, thing that Paul says. To the rest, I, not the Lord, say this. So he's about to say something that Jesus did not, did not say. Why? Because this isn't the topic Jesus was addressing. Jesus wasn't talking about what will happen years later when you have a, a Christian church and one of the spouses is a Christian and the other one isn't. That, was, that had nothing to do with the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 that Jesus was talking about. So when Paul has to deal with that question, he thinks, well, I'm going to have to give you my, my, my answer to this, but I can't just rely on what Jesus said. That, that is also a hint that Jesus did not give a fully detailed theology on the subject. He didn't answer every question, just like the law of Moses didn't answer every question, and just like Paul doesn't seem to answer every question that we might have. Um, he says, to the rest, I, not the Lord, say this, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he shouldn't divorce her. Like, if you're married and your spouse isn't a Christian, we'll stay together. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him or put him away. So again, stay together, even if you're married to an unbeliever. But if the unbelieving partner separates, so if the non-Christian leaves, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So in this situation that Jesus didn't address, you have one uh, spouse who's a Christian, one who's not, and the non-Christian says, you know what? I actually don't want to be married to a Christian. You're bringing persecution into our lives. You're bringing hardship. I don't want my kids hearing this stuff. I want to just keep worshiping the gods that my family's always done. So I'm out of here. He says, let them leave. Uh, you're not under bondage. You're not enslaved in such, a, in such a situation. God called you to peace. And a marriage like that isn't a peaceful one. Uh, okay, so all of this stuff, uh, there's a ton of information and all of it is slightly different than all of the other verses. So what do we, what do, we do with it? Well, let's, let's think about all these teachings for a second. For Matthew, 
and none of the other places mention this. Paul doesn't even mention this. If your spouse cheats on you, then you can potentially divorce and remarry. He's not saying you have to, but at least it's on the table for Matthew. That is not the way it is in the other. Uh, for Mark, all, uh, a woman can initiate divorce. And by the way, Paul says that too. Whereas in Matthew, that's not the case. Uh, only Mark omits that a man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, that's something that the others say, but Mark does not. Luke only ascribes adultery to men. He never says that the woman who is divorced commits adultery in any of these situations. And Paul addresses an entirely unique problem about mixed faith marriages that uh, Jesus wasn't talking about. So I think what we have to do with this information is recognize that Jesus wants husbands and wives to stay together, just like God shows us in Eden. That is the original creation design. However, each of the authors who record the teaching of Jesus, they are aware of the setting to which they are writing, and through inspiration, they adapt the teaching of Jesus to the needs of their particular setting. So why does Matthew mention fornication and Mark doesn't? Well, maybe where Mark was writing, it wasn't a question. You know, there, no one was asking that. Maybe where Matthew was writing, there was a, a well-known family, and the wife had cheated on her husband, and people were asking, well, does he still have to stay married to her then? Or can? And so Matthew helps answer that question. Either way, it's an inspired interpretation of the teachings of Jesus, but notice how the teachings vary based on what the, the needs of the community are. The same is true with whether or not the wife can initiate divorce. Matthew doesn't mention it. Mark does. Why? Because where Mark is writing, they need the answer to that question but Matthew doesn't provide it. And so the teachings of Jesus, uh, in where Paul is, uh, they're working with the church at Corinth, a, a new situation arises that has to be addressed. Well, I, I'm willing to bet that over the last 2,000 years, some new situations have arisen. And sometimes we prayerfully try to do the very best that we can by honoring the teachings of Jesus, but we also have to make some judgment calls and to practice wisdom and to do our very best to, to look at each situation. So what should we remember after looking at some of these passages? I would say no passage addresses every possible situation. And I'm not even certain that our goal is to add them all together and then... Uh, and then make them one teaching, and then anyone who falls outside of that, kick them out of the church forever. I don't think that's what Jesus says to do. Um, divorce was not God's plan for marriage. I think that's abundantly clear from looking at these. It's not a good thing, and it's not something that we should try to do. As a matter of fact, as a church, we should do everything we can to try to help people remain in their marriages. Uh, as husbands and as wives, we should uh, do whatever we can to try to be faithful to our spouses, uh, to try to be patient, loving, long-suffering, and graceful to them uh, instead of giving up on them. And certainly, we shouldn't, out of selfishness, think, you know what? I think I could find someone better. And so we go through the process. I think that is the exact type of thing that Jesus is telling us not to do. To, to do that and to divorce a spouse and to marry another is a form of adultery. Just like lust is adultery in the heart, divorce and remarriage is a, is a form of marital adultery. Uh, Jesus says both of those will find you at odds with that law, thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, marriage is one of the ways we shine our light into the world. So remember the Sermon on the Mount, before Jesus gets into this, he calls us to be the light of the world, the city set on a hill, the salt. One of the ways we do that is with our anger, 
not being angry people. One of the ways we do that is not being lustful people. One of the ways we do that is being committed to our marriages and staying faithful to them. Um, I'll also say, and we'll talk about this here in just a second as we close, but miserable marriages aren't shining a very bright light either. Um, so if we're going to shine a light into the world through our marriages, we should be very we should put a lot of time and intentionality and effort and thought and love into those marriages. Don't just passively endure a miserable marriage so that you honor the command not to get divorced. Try to make your marriage something beautiful that shines a bright light in the world around you. And like everything else Jesus says, failure will happen, just like with anger, just like with lust, with divorce, with honesty, with loving our enemies, with turning the other cheek. I, how many, honestly, if you got slapped in the face, would turn the other cheek and allow a second slap? Honestly. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we fail at a lot of the things Jesus says. We sometimes just choose one or two of them to have no grace towards. And I don't think that that's what Jesus is calling us to do. Um, like everything else, failure is going to happen, and that failure must be met with repentance, and it must be met with forgiveness and it must be met with grace. Uh, and uh, as a church, I think that's something we should make sure that we offer in these types of situations. So here's the call to action. Um, number one, or, or I have number one, but basically, uh, don't just stay married and think, okay, I've done everything Jesus wants. Uh, again, enduring and bearing with and you know, uh, grinding your teeth through a mar miserable marriage isn't really the goal here. A miserable marriage full of pettiness, selfishness, bitterness, anger, and abuse will not shine as a light or reflect God's kingdom. And I would say, uh, don't feel like you have to stay with someone who, especially, who is abusing you. Um, you do, you, you, safety matters. And I don't think Jesus, when, the, when he was asked that question, he was not saying, oh, yes, I want wives to continue to be beaten by miserable husbands or something like that. that. That is not even the question he was answering. And so there are things like that that we should remember context and we should remember what question he's answering. And we should remember that each situation uh, was met uh, to address the needs of that particular community in that particular church. That's what we do. Uh, but also I would say, if you're going to have a marriage that shines as a light in the world around you, then prioritize kindness, thoughtfulness, sacrificial love. Make your marriage something beautiful. If you're being selfish in your marriage, stop. And start thinking every day, what is something I can do today that would put my wife or my husband's needs above my own? What is something that I could do that is an act of kindness towards them? Uh, marriage can be fun. Marriage can be beautiful. Marriage can be something that is the greatest blessing in your life. But like anything else, like being in shape can be great, um, but it doesn't happen through, you know, just eating donuts all day. Like you have to do work in order for it to be something that you enjoy. Marriage is the same thing. You have to put in the effort. Um, really look at yourself and the effort you're putting into your marriage and see, are you genuinely trying to make it something that is joyful and happy? And if you're not, then change that. And there's time. Do it. Do it now. Start loving your spouse the way you promised you would, because I think that's what Jesus calls us to do. Um, and if there's anyone here who there's anyone here who needs the prayers and the help of this church, we would love to help you. Remember, marriage is often a picture of 
God's relationship with us. And God's relationship with us is one absolutely of patience and grace and forbearance. Uh, God offers that. We should offer that to our spouses, and God offers that to us. And if there's anyone here who, likes to, who wants to become a Christian this morning, if there's anyone here who would like the prayers of this church, please let that be known. You can talk to some of our elders in the back, or you can come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.